Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. As we head into Super Bowl Sunday in Las Vegas, the Kansas City Chiefs, the current kings of the NFL, will look to defend their crown against the San Francisco 49ers. The Chiefs are looking to win their second consecutive Super Bowl, which will be their third in four seasons. Another team that had claimed back-to-back titles in their history is their longtime divisional rival, the Denver Broncos, who, in the late 1990s, won back-to-back titles with Hall of Fame quarterback John Elway at the controls. Yet, when you talk about the history of the Denver Broncos franchise, there's a lot more to it than just John Elway. The Broncos are an original American Football League franchise and has had as colorful of a history as their bright orange uniforms. Hello, I'm Dana Augusta, your host of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, the sports history podcast you didn't know you needed. In this all-new episode, we will talk with podcaster Thomas Hall, who knows everything that one person could know about the NFL team that hails from the Rocky Mountains. We will highlight some of the great moments and players that were part of the Broncos and their special place in the history of the league. Later in the show, we will send a shout out to something that you don't see too much of in the NFL anymore, and that is nicknames given to specific units of NFL teams. Do you remember such nicknames as the Fun Bunch or the Dome Patrol or the Million Dollar Backfield or the Fearsome Foursome? And no, and I am not just talking about the one in L.A. during the late 1960s. That and so much more on this all-new edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. 
And we're back, sports fans. I'm Dana Augusta. You are listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. And right now, I am sitting down with a new buddy of mine, Thomas Hall, who is the host of the Mile High Insiders Podcast and Legends of Mile High's podcast. And he knows everything there is to know about the Denver Broncos. And um, (laughs) the Broncos are a great, great organization, as we all know. 15 division titles, eight Super Bowl appearances, and three world championships. And it's also interesting to know that they have a lot of great players and Hall of Famers besides John Elway. But uh, we're going to talk about all of that right now. And uh, Mr. Hall, thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about the Denver Broncos. There's still plenty to learn, but I will do my best to – to talk a little bit about the the Broncos uh, for sure. Okay. Um, let I mean, like we were talking earlier, right before we came on, um, when you talk about the that organization is almost industrial uh, malfeasance, not to begin and end the conversation with John Elway. Um, oh, yeah. You know, for sure. it was a very interesting way of how he joined the organization, obviously. You know, he was the first draft pick of the then Baltimore Colts, and then he decided, I'm not going to play for Baltimore. So he comes to Denver and becomes a legend, sort of, and becomes a legend, point blank, end of discussion. Uh, what are your, what are some of your favorite memories of John Elway? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the drive, because when I was young, I started watching the Broncos. I got into football really kind of in the late 70s. I was still pretty young. Early 80s, I started to like the Denver Broncos, um, and the drive was – it's still ingrained in my memory. I still get goosebumps when I see the the replay of the drive on YouTube or whatever. And that's when I really kind of solidified my Broncos fandom for life. But that – you know, for me, that's the first thing I think of when I think of John Elway is the drive because that really took him from, you know, a first-round draft choice, potential superstar to – Hey, this guy can uh, this guy can put a team on his back and take them to the Super Bowl. So that was a that was huge. Um, and then I think the next the very next one is uh, the helicopter play. I mean, everyone knows about it. You could tell that was that their first Super Bowl win. He wanted it so bad, and that was like the epitome of John Elway going. You know, thirty seven years old, sacrificing his body. Thirty six. I can't remember exactly how old he was then, but you know, going for it all just to try and uh, beat the Green Bay Packers and win that Super Bowl. So those are two that are ingrained in my mind from, uh, you know, from way back when. When you talk about the drive, I mean, from my own personal experience, I remember that like that game, like it was yesterday, to be completely honest, I was in junior high and watching that game. And I was a crazy football fan even then. And I was just like, there's no way they're going to go drive all the way down the field on Cleveland to tie the game. There's no way that's going to happen. And he converted third down after third down after third down. You know, I remember there was one down. <laughs> third and 18 play where the ball actually hit the receiver running in motion, hit him on the, hit him in the hip. He's gathered himself and threw a first down pass. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And then the pass to Mark Jackson, after that, and uh, I've always thought about this. And when you talk about the Elway years and you talk about all of the great players that, that played alongside John Elway, 
One thing that's never really discussed, I think, and I think is a shame, and maybe you could answer this question for me because I may be in a minority that feels this way. Do you think the receiving core for the Broncos during that time, we're talking Ricky Natil, Mark Jackson, Vance Johnson, do you consider them one of the most underrated receiving cores ever? No, I don't. Actually, they weren't that great of a receiving core. They were pretty good. I mean, I love Mark Jackson. Don't get me wrong. I love Vance uh, Vance Johnson as a kid, but they weren't they weren't spectacular players. They were pretty solid, and I think um, you know the offense that that Dan Reeves had them in and and John Elway helped them a lot. Um, but I don't think they're really that underrated. Uh, the the guy that I think is underrated who played with him early on was Steve Watson. Incredible yeah, receiver. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I forgot one of about the, Steve Watson, uh, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about uh, Elway playing back then from like 83 to 1990, I think he had two receivers that were in the top 10 for yards. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have an incredible cast around him, especially when it came to the receivers. But you know he could he could throw the ball so well that you know if, as long as they caught it they you know with the the heat on it they were uh, they were going to be set up for you know pretty good uh, pretty decent numbers but I think if you put them on a different team they may not have had as much success and 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 Ricky Natil really he had that good rookie season and then he was kind of gone so um, yeah I, I did I did a little uh, research on Elway from that time period that yeah you know, like I said two two receivers that had. Uh, you know, we're in the top 10 for receiving yards, two running backs in the top 10 for receiving yards during that time. So his cast was, uh, and really no all pros, no hall of famers to play with till, you know, till Shannon Sharp came on board on that offense anyway. And then, uh, you know, he had a few pro bowl, uh, few pro bowlers on the team, but it was really a, a cast that a supporting cast that wasn't incredible. And I think Elway helped, you know, even though people look back at his stats and they're like, Oh, he, you know, he didn't have very good sets. He he made that team better. He really did. He he really lifted those uh, players around him. Well, you know, as as someone who everybody that, that listens to this podcast know that I am a diehard Chargers fan, and I you know I'm a, the biggest Dan Fouts fan that was because that was like my first true sports hero that I actually remember watching play. Uh, he was. Yep. He was he was just to me the man, and um, but when you talk, but if somebody asks me if I there was a a drive to be gotten a touchdown that needed to be scored, and you could pick any quarterback, and my life hung on the balance, I'm picking John Elway because for some reason yeah. he always came through in the clutch with 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 key drives and last second drives, almost seemed like every single time. Of, of course, being a Chargers fan, I saw that firsthand. Um, you know, if you don't believe me, ask somebody that's a Chiefs fan. But because uh, he used tormented the Chiefs for years and years and years, uh, or the Browns sure. or anybody else for that matter. Uh, and that was the one of the true aspects and one of the true great things about John Elway. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of talent around him offensively, but he did make them better. And that's what you that's what you really want out of a quarterback is to make the players that you have around you better. And he did that better than I think anybody else. Yeah, as, when you look back at all the quarterbacks, I think his supporting cast is similar to what like Randall Cunningham Cunningham mm-hmm. had. But like you talk about Dan Fouts, you talk about Dan Marino, you talk about Joe Montana, all these other quarterbacks that were playing about the same time, they had Hall of Famers on their offense. They had all pros on their offense. And you know, that you can you can look at that and say, Man, 
Well, it was good drafting. Obviously, I can't take anything. You know, they were able to go out and you know identify talent and bring them in. But you know, when you're working with a, a supporting ta- uh, cast that is not you know of that caliber, you you got to look at the quarterback and say, man, it had a lot to do with John Elway. Okay, now we're gonna go back a little bit further. Okay, not that that much further, but I'm gonna go a little bit further back. And okay. the Orange Crush defense. When you also think of the Broncos, you think of the Orange Crush, which was primarily yep. a defensive unit. The offense was also pretty good, but the defense was more notable. You know, you had you had guys like Randy Gratishar, who's up for the Hall of Fame this year, finally. I think it's been past due that he gets consideration for the Hall of Fame. You had Lau Alzado, you had Ruben Carter, you had Louis Wright, you had a whole bunch of great Tom, Tom Jackson was a rookie, you know, you had a great, that great defensive unit that propelled them from a NFL obscurity in the mid seventies to a Super Bowl. You know, what do what was some of your recollections about that team back then? Yeah. Well, no, no firsthand recollections. Cause I was too young to remember that squad, but I do remember the wealth of talent that they had on the defensive side of the ball. And I think they would be more recognized today had they won that Super Bowl against the Cowboys in 77. But that was one of the greatest defenses of all time. It really was. Um, And you, you know, the problem was you couldn't really overcome eight turnovers in a Super Bowl to win, uh, which was was a bummer. You know, the offense really let them down. But, I mean, Billy Thompson is uh, one of the most underrated safeties that have been the Broncos. I forgot about him. Yeah, great player. Louis Wright. I mean, it was loaded with talent. All the guys that you said, plus a great coordinator, too. Joe Collier is one of the more inventive and, um, you know, uh, know, one of the best defensive coordinators that have really, you know, really changed the face of the NFL with that 3-4 defense. So, it was a stacked defense. Uh, offense was actually pretty good too, like you said. I mean, they brought in Craig Morton, who really kind of got them over the hump into the first time into the playoffs was that season. And, you know, he had some experience with the playoffs with the Cowboys, so that helped a lot. But you got Riley Odoms, you got Rick Upchurch, Haven Moses. I mean, you had some really good players on that offense, and it just wasn't meant to be. You know, that that uh, that Super Bowl just didn't go their way. Now, 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 you say that you are a Denver Broncos podcaster. You know a lot of things about the Broncos. One of the things I also want to point out, and this going before then, it's the '60s. I don't know how much you know about the the Broncos of the '60s, but I'm gonna say this: even though they were one of the one of the least impressive teams during their years in the AFL. They have some players that a lot of people don't know about. One player in particular, and maybe you could speak on this a little bit, Lionel Taylor. Yep. He's and a- Lionel Taylor, believe it or not, the first, first player, first receiver ever to have, what, 100 catches in a season? That's right. Which yep. didn't happen again until the 90s and Herman Moore. And he did this in 1964, I believe, uh, where he caught 100 passes. And... You had a lot of great players who come there. Who were some of the great players that came out was with the Broncos doing the the sixties, doing their early years. Yeah. Well, Lionel Taylor definitely was one of the few stars back then. And you're right. And some of, he actually, uh, I think had um, drawn his name, uh, drawn a blank his name 
Charlie Henningsen or something like that. Charlie Henningsen for the Oilers. Yeah, he he actually had 101 catches r- right after. So it he did break Lionel Taylor's 100 yard catch mark. But you're right, it didn't. That didn't. Uh, you know those those stood for a very long time. And in fact, Lionel Taylor, I believe, if I remember correctly, had five top 15 seasons uh, for catches all the way up almost to the nineties. Like it was, it was incredible how many times he caught so many balls. He, just, he wasn't really dynamic and fast, but he, you know, you threw that ball to him, he would catch it. And that was, you know, it, it didn't matter if it was close enough, he would grab a hold of it. So back then there was really only a few really good players when they started out. And that's why they weren't very successful. Lionel Taylor was one of them. Uh, Goose Gonsolin, uh safety, yeah. Uh, led the led the AFL in career interceptions, and uh, then he left and went to the 49ers for a year. And it, that wasn't broken for a few years after by Dave Grayson and others who had been there in the AFL for quite a while. So those were the two really big stars. Uh, Frank Tripuca, uh, two years as the quarterback, first quarterback to roll uh, throw for 3,000 yards. So, you know, he was he was in the mix for that, but he was kind of at the end of his career. And then I would say Eldon Dannenhauer was maybe the only other real star you could point to back then. He was offensive tackle. Uh, funny thing is, is he he actually was a tag along with his brother to camp. They invited his brother to camp and said, if you know anybody that can play football, bring him along. And he brought Eldon along. He made the team and became uh, an excellent offensive tackle for the team where his brother didn't didn't last very long. That was like the the first uh, first uh, brother uh, duo in the in Broncos history the, to play on the same team and one of the first in uh, in NFL history. But yeah, th- those are who I can point to, and that's why they didn't have a winning season until the early seventies because they just they, they couldn't get the stars. Their AF uh, their first round draft choices back then would went to the NFL instead, so they had a a, a void of talent for a long time, and it wasn't until the early seventies when they kind of turned that around. Now, one of the, when you talk of the early seventies, you think of Floyd Little um, yep. from Syracuse. Uh, he was the Denver Broncos think first bona fide superstar, and he was a very he was responsible for keeping the Broncos in Denver because there were some rumors that they were going to leave the Mile High City. Yep, yeah, they call him the franchise for a reason, not only because he was the first first round draft choice that signed with the club and, and really was their first superstar to, to play for the Denver Broncos. But it's absolutely correct. They were going to move the team. They actually, uh, Floyd Little and the rest of the players went door to door to raise money to keep them in Denver um, because they were about to become, I believe it was the Birmingham Broncos back then. They were, they were really going to move. And uh, that kind of first foray into crowdsourcing, so to speak, was uh, because uh, uh, Floyd Little and the rest of the team went out and and some of them went, they weren't just in Denver, like some of them traveled, uh, you know, many miles to to go door to door to to get some funds in order to stay in Denver. So, yeah, they call him the franchise. That's his nickname. And there's a re- there's uh, multiple reasons for it, for sure. Wow. Now, that, that's so I had heard something like that happening once upon a time for an NBA team for the Indiana Pacers. When they first joined the NBA, they did a telethon um, to, to, to keep them around. Uh, but in the Broncos led by Floyd Little going door to door. I mean, can you imagine Floyd Little knocking on your door asking for funds to keep the Broncos in Denver? I mean, that's 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 hard to wrap my head around, to be honest. Yeah, it is. It's it is incredible. I mean, it's incredible how there's so many times that the Broncos, not so many times. There were a few times where it was the Broncos almost were gone from Denver. 
Uh, one of them being back then, you know, and, and their, their stadium wasn't big enough. So they had to expand their stadium when they merged with the NFL. And then even uh, when Pat Bowen took over in the early eighties, he actually saved them as well. They were, they were financially desperate. Maybe you're going to sell the team, maybe going to move Pat Bowen bought it, kept him in Denver. And, you know, they went on to have one of the most historic runs of success in any, any of the uh, really major league uh, sports teams in America. So uh, yeah, there, it, it, well, their presence in Denver was hanging on by a thread more than once. Okay. And uh, for it, and before we move on any further, talk about your podcast and some of the things that you do on your podcast. Sure. So legends of mile high podcast. That's that I do that on my own. Uh, I don't have a co-host, but we, I talk about current events, but I also try and bring in history a lot. So for a long time, I was I was telling the Mile High Legend, which was a story about the Denver Broncos. Kind of, if you ever uh, ever listened to Paul Harvey back in the day, uh, with the you know his his story that he would tell the rest of the story, the rest of I the story, like right? The, Absolutely. Yeah, I kind of got the um, you know the idea from that, so I, I'll tell that story. I haven't done that for a long time because it, it takes a lot of research to do a lot of new event current events coming on, but yeah, I try and wrap history into, into that. And then mile high insiders is that's an evening show that we do. I do with Luke Patterson. He's he's uh, we co-host that together and that's real. Uh, that's Broncos news. You know, whatever comes up during the the day that we want to talk about, we'll uh, we'll jump on that. So we've been legends of mile high has been uh, going for almost two years and I've been on mile high insiders, which was started before I, I became the co-host after the, one of the, co one of the hosts left. And that's, I've been doing that for about a year. So, and I actually had another one for a while too on Saturday, but I just got so much going on. I, I had to like step back from that one. I'm trying to start a NFL stats and analytic business. And uh, so I'm trying to, trying to get more time in the day. So uh, I, I stopped doing the, the, but that's orange and blue view. That was fun as well. Saturday we did did a lot of pregame shows for the during the season. Okay, now when you talk about, I call it the Broncos Super Bowl years when they were when they won back to back Super Bowls during the um, during the late nineties. Um, let's talk about that that area and that that time period for for Broncos, which was by far their glory years. Yeah. Well, I mean, 1998, the, the, that was one of the best teams in the history of the NFL, really. I mean, they were they were a formidable offense, solid defense. But those back-to-back -back Super Bowls were incredible. Obviously, uh, so you kind of have to go back to uh, back to like 1993. So John Elway, we talked about him a little bit. And, he, you know, statistically, he wasn't he wasn't the best quarterback if you looked at stats. But around 1993, Jim, uh, Jim Fassel became the offensive coordinator to Wade Phillips. And institute the West Coast offense, and he he had learned from uh, from Bill Walsh at Stanford. So, and that's when John Elway really became a better quarterback. So, if you look at 1993, it was it was his best season, really statistically. I know 87 he won the MVP during that strike year, but 1993 was his best season. So that carried forward. He became a better quarterback, better you know. It wasn't just like rocket arm John Elway. He was he was kind of uh, taking that to the next level. And then Mike Shanahan came on board and continued that, but then he brought in the zone blocking scheme as well with Alex Gibbs, and that is what made that D, uh, that offense so much better. John Elway could beat you with his arm, and Terrell Davis was going to get 
his yards, you know, cause it was Gerald Davis, is a perfect match, like bringing him into the zone blocking scheme. If he'd have went somewhere else under a different, he'd probably been, been an okay running back, I would say, but that was like, it was like the perfect marriage, you know, right. Uh, zone blocking scheme and Terrell Davis. In fact, his, um, if you count playoffs, 1997 and 1998 are the most yards gained by a running back in the history of the NFL. He's better than Eric Dickerson's season, better than any uh, OJ Simpson season. It was the most, uh, the top two. So the running game was, was basically what powered that offense, but Elway could also, you know, win the game with his arm. Like he always did, even Mm -hmm. though he was older, he had his best seasons. It, It was all, all of his best seasons really came except for 87 came after he was older in that West coast offense after 1993. What was also interesting. I mean, they had an opportunity. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I said, I was about to say, I was just going to say they had a very opportunistic offense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, opportunistic defense as well. A lot of, they were able to to get sacks, generate turnovers. So they, they were, they didn't have the, uh, like a stifling defense, but it was uh, a good enough defense to get the offense more, more opportunities and, and stop, the other opposing offices when it needed. So they were really good teams. Now, when you, now you said you talked about, you know, the, the, the zone blocking scheme, that was probably one of the most revolutionary things that I could remember. Cause this, I mean, this is mid nineties, everybody, the zone blocking scheme and everything with Mark Schlereth and that great offensive line that they had employing that zone blocking that was revolutionary to the NFL because the Broncos were the first team to actually start doing that sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, Alex Gibbs learned the, the um, zone blocking scheme and, and he, he's like, I, I guess you'd call him the godfather of it. Right. Cause he, he really took the, to the 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 wide zone right he really right. he really implemented that with uh with the broncos and yeah it was you know it was his his doing but it's why i keep saying that tom nalen deserves to be in the hall of fame because he was the only offensive lineman that remained on that uh offensive line through all those years even after Terrell davis you know, they still are churning out thousand yard running backs, no name running backs who went other places. And, you know, we usually didn't have as much success. And even after Alex Gibbs left the Broncos, Nalen was still there as the mainstay across that offensive line. But in 1997, I mean, that was one of the greatest offensive lines in history. If you think about it, I mean, it's, it, it's got to be ranked in the top 10 because you had, you had Gary Zimmerman, you had Tony Jones, who was a very underrated uh, uh, offensive That's right. Yeah. Right. And Tom Nalen, Mark Schlerth, and, and Brian Habib. And Habib left, uh, and Zimmerman left in 98, and they didn't miss a beat. I mean, they just, they didn't, they, it was such, it was such a great scheme. And even so, even now they've, they've emphasized rules and stuff to kind of limit, you know, the cutting and, and a lot of the things that they did back then. But it's still, I mean, there's still so many teams that use it today you know, this, you know, several decades later mm-hmm. that, it, you know, it was, you're right. It was a revolutionary concept that changed the face of the NFL. All right. And I'm going to get you out of here with this. And this is something that I do from time to time with people that come on and that know a lot about a certain team. And one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do something called name association. And what I'm going to do is, okay. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two names. Okay. From Broncos past or present. If you had to choose, which one would you take? Okay, over okay. the other. Okay? okay. Here's the first one. 
Would you take Floyd Little or Terrell Davis? Terrell Davis. I mean, I love Floyd Little. Don't get me wrong. Uh, great running back in the Hall of Fame. Terrell Davis was the best running back in Broncos history. Now, if you put him on different teams, that's a different story. But based on where, you know, what you could see from the Broncos, Terrell Davis was the best running back that has ever played in the orange and blue and the most successful as well. And, okay, it, you yeah. know, the reason why he doesn't have bigger stats is he got hurt, you know, yeah, too he's, early. He's short, his career was, was ridiculously short, right? Yeah. And he's the greatest playoff running back of all time. If you want your players to play the biggest time, uh, biggest games of their career in the playoffs, Terrell Davis did that 142 yards per game. It's That's it, ridiculous. It dwarfs <laughs> anybody else out there. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Give me a next one. Okay. We got wide receivers now. Haven Moses or Rod Smith? Rod Smith. Yeah, easily. I love Haven Moses. I love the story of why he ended up with the Broncos. It's just kind of funny. It has to do with a face mask. Yeah. But uh, uh, Rod Smith, incredible receiver. In fact, if you look at uh, 2000, 2001, you know, that era, like the three years in that era, uh, he was arguably the one of the best wide receivers in the game. If you look at his stats, you look at what he was able to do in a run first offense, um, you know, and you're, you're talking about Torrey Holt being there at the time, you know, Ryan, Randy Moss during that time. And his stats are pretty good with uh, comparable to those, that same three year, two and three year period. So yeah. Uh, and, and he just, he had a heart that you would want in every player. He never gave up on a play. He always went, went, hundred percent, always tried to win, always tried to get the last yard. And uh, you can't ask for, for a uh, better heart in a player than Rod Smith. Okay. Got a couple more for you. Craig Morton or Jay Cutler? Okay. Uh, Craig Morton. Yeah, I would take Craig Morton. Craig Morton actually in 1981 had one of the best seasons passing in Denver Broncos history and one of the better seasons in NFL history, really. Um, yeah, I and he taught the team how to win, right? He or he got him over the hump, right? He yeah, came in. Exactly. He'd never been to the playoffs. He came in and, and showed him how to get to the get to the playoffs and and become a winning team. Jay Cutler, strong arm. Uh, he, I just don't think he cared that much, you know. But he, right. I think he could have been a really good quarterback had he stayed with Shanahan. But you know, Shanahan was let go, and then the whole Josh McDaniels debacle and all that. But yeah, I, I'm going Craig Morton. Okay, one more. Louis Wright or Steve okay. Atwater? Steve Atwater or Louis Wright? Yeah. Wow. That's a tough one. Um, because their, their games were so different. Uh, I grew up watching Steve Atwater, one of my favorite players of all time. I'll I'll pick Steve Atwater, but with the uh, you know, with the caveat that Louis Wright is a extremely underrated cornerback, original shutdown cornerback. Quarterbacks didn't throw to towards him very very often um all-around player but steve atwater you know when i was growing you know formidable years man steve atwater the 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 massive hits that he would lay on people hall of famer uh got those two championships and in fact i would say if you if terrell davis didn't get the um mvp you could have given it to steve atwater because he played so well in that game and was unbelievably um, important. Some important plays that he made in that game that uh, he could have won. He could have won the MVP without a doubt. 
Okay, I'll give you a bonus one. I, this one I just thought about. Okay. The current Broncos uniform, uh, current Broncos helmet, or the old school light blue yeah. D with the horse. I I love the old school helmet. I I've the although they've had their success, their Super Bowl championship success in these new helmets. The old helmet just it's so nostalgic. I love the I love the look of it. So I'm hoping that they make some sort of good combination of you know what they had is their success when championships with what they uh what they had in the past when they come out with their new helmets but uh yeah i'll take the old school d logo it's it was just so cool it's one of the one of the best helmets of all time well thomas it was very very good to meet you and very very informative and you know a lot about your broncos history and that's the reason why you came on um I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, and once again, I tell it to everybody, it, whenever you want to come back on, just drop me a line and I'll put you on. You're, you're welcome. Guest I will. I, will. I, I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I, I hope your listeners uh, learned something from it. So I think I'm more than sure much. they will. I learned a lot from it. So they go right. So I, I'm I really so much appreciative of you coming on tonight. That was Mile High podcaster Thomas Hall joining us on this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, the sports history podcast you didn't know you needed. A podcast that places a historical twist on today's sports headlines is just a reminder. If you happen to like what you hear and you want to hear more, please do not hesitate to like and subscribe to the podcast. And also, you could drop us a line right here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Also, you could follow us on Twitter or X, whichever you prefer. I prefer Twitter, personally. On Twitter or X at HistoricallySP2. Now that Super Bowl 58 is just a couple of days away, I think it is appropriate at this time to quickly talk about the two teams that will be part of the big game this upcoming Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs looking to win the franchise's fourth Super Bowl all-time in their third and four seasons. If the Chiefs win, they will be the first team since the 2004-2005 New England Patriots to win back-to-back Super Bowl titles and would vault the Chiefs into the realm of being called a dynasty. Meanwhile, standing in their way of the San Francisco 49ers, a former dynasty in their own right, They're looking to win the franchise's fifth Super Bowl title in their eighth appearance in Super Sunday. In this matchup of more key NFL organizations, the Chiefs will be looking to join the Packers, Dolphins, Steelers, Cowboys, Broncos, and Patriots as the only teams to win back-to-back Super Bowl titles, while the 49ers will look to match the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cowboys with five Super Bowls trailing only the New England Patriots from most Lombardi trophies. Now at this part of the segment, I will do something that I normally do not go into that often, and that is a full-blown rant. Now, this week we're heading into the game, and I listen to national sports media as I travel to and from work every day. And at times, I have to remind myself that the 49ers are also in this game too. The media, or this certain media company, who mostly shall remain nameless, have become almost Chiefs-centric, considering, debating, and contemplating if the Chiefs will be the next New England Patriots. 
And furthermore, is quarterback Patrick Mahomes on the way to becoming the greatest of all time? Well, the Chiefs as a team have matched the Patriots in some respects, and that is they're slowly becoming the NFL's villains. Now, let's not get it twisted, okay? The New England Patriots were sort of villainous because of the evil genius vibe that Bill Belichick excluded, while the all-American image of Tom Brady, to me, seemed almost manufactured and colorless. The Chiefs, on the other hand, has, Andy, has Coach Andy Reid, who is sort of like the every man's next-door neighbor. You know, someone you don't mind borrowing your weed whacker. Then there's Pat Mahomes, who is on seemingly every third commercial. And then there's Travis Kelsey, who is dating the most popular woman on the face of planet Earth. To be frank and honest, they're almost likable. But I believe what makes them unlikable, we're just simply tired of seeing them. Three times in four seasons and we have them in the Super Bowl. I mean, once upon a time, sports fans sort of like dynasties. You know, the Yankees, the Celtics, the Canadians, and the NHL. They were all royalties of sports. Yet, that was generations ago. Now, we as a culture like change. And I believe that that is the reason why fans are simply tired of them. It's not their fault they're so good. And to the national media, could you please stop with comparing Pat Mahomes to Tom Brady? Just stop. In this present day of sports reporting, it has become less of analyzing what you see and more about what you could actually accurately predict to be the next greatest of all time. If you are a sports radio host and you need to fill some time, just ask who's the best player ever, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. If you do that, the phone lines would light up. Trust me, I've seen it firsthand. As a sports culture, we can we just take a breath and just enjoy what we're seeing? Tom Brady has won seven, count them, seven Super Bowls. If Mahomes wins, He'll equal Troy Aikman with three Super Bowls. That's not bad. And Hall of Fame worthy for sure. What will the future hold for Mahomes and the Chiefs? You know, only time will tell. And dude, just let it happen and stop with the comparisons already on who will be the best of all time. And besides, you can rest assured, the best quarterback of all time is going to be Justin Herbert. Did you see what I did there? Coming up after the break, we'll send a shout out to something that, as football fans, we don't see too much of in the NFL anymore, and that is team nicknames. I was part of a generation that watched NFL games on TV that featured the likes of the Soul Patrol, the Killer Bees, the Legion of Boom, and the greatest show on turf. We will remember and reminisce about NFL team nicknames coming up on this all-new episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, 
with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network. To conclude this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, we do what we always do here. And that is to send a shout out to an individual or a team or event in the world of sports history that has been perhaps overlooked or forgotten about, but is very relevant even to this day. And sports fans need to be sort of reminded of. And I don't know if this is even a thing anymore, but... When I was a younger sports fan growing up in the 1980s, there was a thing in the NFL where teams that had a great collection of athletes on one side of the ball or another had a nickname given to them by either the fans or the local media or maybe themselves. But it was a nickname that gave them almost instant notoriety. As a young fan growing up in South Louisiana in the late 70s and 80s, it seemed like teams that were any good had a group, whether it was on offense or defense, they carried with them a moniker of how good they were and was more of a type of intimidation than it was a marketing gimmick. And even then, that line was somewhat blurred. That time was the same time that our local NFL team, the New Orleans Saints, were finally coming out of the wilderness of endless losing seasons to become an NFL power. The Saints featured quarterback Bobby Bear, running backs Reuben Mays, Dalton Hilliard, Craig Ironhead Hayward, and head coach Jim Mora. Playoffs? Playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? You know, that Jim Mora. But at the heart of that team was their linebacking core, known as the Dome Patrol that featured Pat Swilling, Vaughn Johnson, Sam Mills, and Hall of Famer Ricky Jackson. They were at the, they were the heart of a defense that propelled the Saints into the playoffs in 1987 for the first time in their 21-year history. That was when it was cool to have a nickname for a certain group of players. One of the most recent was the Legion of Boom, the Seattle Seahawks defensive secondary, which was an integral part of two Super Bowl teams. Now, going back to my more formative years as a football fan, who remembers the New York sack exchange of the New York Jets? You know, the Jets defensive line that was with Mark Gastineau, Marty Lyons, Abdul Salam, and Hall of Famer Joe Klecko. In the 1982 AFC Championship game, the Jets faced off against the Miami Dolphins with their own famous defensive nickname, the Killer Bees. Why the Killer Bees? Well, because seven of the Dolphins' 11 defensive starters' names began with the letter B. Bob Baumhauer, Doug Betters, Kimbo Camper, Charles Bowser, Bob Brzezinski, and so-called Bruise Brothers, Glenn and Lyle Blackwood. After the Dolphins defeated the Jets, they faced Washington in Super Bowl 17. 
The Redskins featured the Hogs, the Redskins offensive line that cleared the way for John Riggins' The Diesel's MVP performance. Washington also featured the Smurfs, named after the popular Saturday morning cartoon at the time. They were Washington's wide receiving core, which were made up of players that were mostly under six feet tall. And you cannot mention Washington in the early 80s without the Fun Bunch. It was a group of wide receivers and tight ends that would get together after touchdowns and in a circle, jump in the air and give each other high fives as a group. Oh man, those were some great times. Yet when you talk about groups that had nicknames, for the most part, it was defense. There was some more famous than others. There was the Steel Curtain in Pittsburgh, Doomsday in Dallas. There was the defensive backfield in Oakland named the Soul Patrol that featured Jack Tatum, Butch Atkinson, Skip Thomas, and Hall of Famer Willie Brown. In the early 1970s, there was the Miami Dolphins defense known as the No-Name Defense, with the likes of Hall of Famer Nick Bonacondi, as well as Jake Scott, Manny Fernandez, Mike Cullen, Dick Anderson, and Curtis Johnson. The Dolphins were a solid defensive unit that really went unnoticed. In the days leading up to Super Bowl VI, Dallas Cowboys coach Tom Landry was asked about Miami's defense. He said they were a great fundamentally sound defensive unit. I just don't know any of their names. And that was where the nickname, the no-name defense, was born. In Denver, there was the Orange Crush defense led by the likes of newly minted Hall of Famer Randy Gratishar. Also, Lyle Alzado, Louis Wright, Reuben Carter, and Tom Jackson. In Minnesota, there was the Purple People Eaters, and of course, in Los Angeles, you cannot talk about any famous defensive lineup without talking about the fearsome foursome, with Hall of Famers Deacon Jones, Merlin Olsen, Rosie Greer, and Lamar Lundy. They were perhaps the most famous, quote-unquote, fearsome foursome, but believe it or not, they weren't the first. In 1957, a New York Daily News article titled A, titled a Fearsome Foursome highlighted the New York Giants defensive front that featured defensive ends Andy Robustelli and Jim Cavage, and tackles Rosie Greer, that's that guy again, and Dick Mojuleski. Several years later, the Detroit Lions announcer Van Patrick applied the nickname to the Lions, Lions front four of Bill Glass, Darius McCord, Alex Karras, and Roger Brown. Then there was the AFL's fearsome foursome, the defensive line of the early San Diego Chargers, that, made up of, that was made up of Bill Neary, Bill Hudson, Earl Faison, and defensive tackle and future pro wrestler Ernie Big Cat Ladd, who stood 6'9 and weighed 290 pounds. Now, cool nicknames were not just related to the offense, not just related to the defense, I should say. Offense had really cool nicknames as well. There was the million-dollar backfield of the San Francisco 49ers in the 50s that featured Hugh McElhenney, John Henry Johnson, Joe the Jet Perry, and quarterback Y.E. Tittle. Then there was the Electric Company, the offensive line of the Buffalo Bills in the 70s. They were in charge of what they called turning on the juice, referring to running back O.J. Simpson. Then there was the offensive unit of the San Diego Chargers, known as, of course, Air Coriel, named after Coach Don Coriel. At a time when running the football was the essential part of offensive football in the late 70s and 80s, Coach Coriel threw caution to the winds, literally and figuratively, and devised an offensive system where the pass was just as important or maybe more important than the run. 
Led by Hall of Fame quarterback Dan Fouts, there was tight end Kellen Winslow, receivers Charlie Joyner, John Jefferson, and then later Wes Chandler. The Chargers became one of the most impressive offensive units in NFL history. Their plays were innovative, so groundbreaking in fact. The St. Louis Rams defeated the Tennessee Titans in Super Bowl 34 with an offensive unit known as the greatest show on turf. Their offense featured quarterback Kurt Warner along with Marshall Falk, Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt, Ricky Pro, and Oz Hakeem. But their plays that led them to two Super Bowls in three years were literally the same plays that made Air Coriel a dominant force more than a decade previous. Great nicknames in the NFL is something that I think probably comes and goes from time to time, but when it is indeed here, it makes the NFL just that much more interesting. Thank you guys for listening, and that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, coming to you from the Bill King Memorial Studio in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises, located in suburban Atlanta, in the shadow of Stone Mountain. To get more content of Historically Speaking Sports, you can check us out on Twitter or X at historicallysp2, or you could send us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you have not done so already, please, please subscribe to the show. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Hell, tell a passerby on the street about us if you think they like sports history. Thank you for joining me. I'm Dana Augusta. And also thanks to my good friend Thomas Hall for joining me on this episode. And until next time, stay blessed, stay cool, and be your best in everything that you do. Peace. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.